Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. A very warm welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and today we're going to be speaking to Professor Mark S. Preston from the Columbia University School of Social Work. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Agnes. Thank you so much for taking the time and accepting to come on our podcast. And I'm particularly thrilled because today we're going to be exploring a topic that we haven't really spoken about before on the Work Life podcast. And this coincides with Dr. Preston's scholarly interests, which include work stress, work motivation, and managerial behavior. So today we're going to be delving into more detail into the topics of stress and what causes stress, what are some of the responses that workers may experience when they're um, subjected to continued periods of stress, and, and then what are the factors that lead to burnout. Before we do that, I would like to ask you, um, Mark, could you just please take us through the journey of how you got into this particular field of research? I'd be more than happy to. Um, in uh, Arizona, I received my master's in social work, and I started working in child welfare, which is a very high-stress, high-burnout field. I worked in child welfare approximately for 10 years in the state of Arizona, as well as Alaska, um, where I was more of a manager, troubleshooter in the state of Alaska, fixing child welfare offices. And there I got to see firsthand how stress and burnout not only negatively, negatively affected workers, but also negatively affected the children and families that uh, workers were serving. Um, I decided to pursue a PhD, and in my PhD program, um, I focused on job stress. Um, they're looking at how the characteristics of the work environment can either induce stress in individuals or produce motivated behavior. And so, specifically, what I'm trying to um, look at is what are the levers that organizations, managers can pull that are very cheap but have a high impact that not only reduce stress but also induce motivated behavior. Now perhaps the first 
question to start with would be around stress factors and what does that mean in terms of um, environment and stress factors that you just mentioned. So may I just ask you to go a little bit more into detail as to what you mean by stress and by the stress factors? Um, stress manifests itself in, in, in a number of ways and so it might be good at this point to sort of clarify what I mean by when I'm talking about stress and how academics sort of view stress um, because it's very different than what the, how the general public views as stress. So stress is a process. Um, it's a process that has three components to it. One is, is that there is some sort of external event or stimulus called a stressor that could be a high caseload. Um, so you have this external stressor. The next part is an appraisal process where the worker appraises the level of threat that the potential stressor, the high caseload, may potentially have on her or him. And then the last part is a strain reaction. That strain reaction could be psychological, could be emotional, um, could be behavioral. An example of a psychological uh, strain reaction is um, basically anxiety, depression. Um, a emotional reaction could be anger. And a behavioral action, action could be you start to come in late to work, you start not to show up for work, high absenteeism. And so people, external events, stressors are praised by individuals and they have some sort of response. And the appraisal process is the key here because it explains why two people can experience the same event but have different outcomes. For the individuals. One person could be stressed by a high caseload, the other person could be motivated by a high caseload. And so, so the key point in the stress process is how people appraise what is going on in their work environments. Well, thank you very much for this very clear overview of these three different stages and steps. And I think that really clarifies a lot for me already in terms of why in any given company, um, employees would react very differently to the same kind of pressures or the same workload. And I guess this really also depends on um, how long they have been, how much experience they have, or how resilient they are. Is that correct? Yes, yes. It, uh, the appraisals will vary depending on the person's, will take a, a, someone working in an organization. The more experience you get, the more confident you're going to be in your abilities. So when you're encountered with a high workload, you're going to appraise it as a non-threat. If you're a new worker, and you start to get an extremely high caseload or you start to encounter situations that you don't know what to do, 
you're going to praise that as a threat and therefore that would induce more stress on a new worker than it would an experienced worker. Great. And, and I think that here's already the first piece of good news that I'm hearing from you is that in any given work environment, even if there's overwork or a high workload, there is something that can be done from manager's point of view on this um, appraisal process, right? Correct. This is, this is um, one of the key things that managers um, can focus on is sort of this appraisal process that workers go through. If workers feel like they're trained to do the job well, if workers feel like they have the resources that they need to do the job well, workers feel like they're getting support from their um, organization to do the job well, that's going to have, a, that workers who are in those situations will appraise unexpected events, stressful events, um, as more positively than workers who aren't in those sort of contexts. May I ask you, Mark, to unpack this a little bit further for us in terms of what are some of the interventions that managers and organizations can do or measures they can put in place to facilitate and help workers in this appraisal process for them to be more confident and more positive? Well, typically, organizations that, that are sensitized to this, there's sort of two two broad types of interventions that um, organizations engage in. Um, the first is called secondary interventions and those sort of focus on, on sort of the outcomes of stress. And so meditation, relaxation, those types of interventions also, there's interventions called cognitive behavioral interventions, which is a fancy word, but it basically just means how your thoughts impact what you do. And so focusing on having people appraise something not in a negative way, but appraise it in a more positive way. Uh, the second group of interventions focus more on the causes of the stressors. And so those focus more on organizational factors that might be inducing stress. Um, and those organizational factors could be across the whole organization, or they could be factors that are more specific to an individual's worker's circumstance. Could you elaborate a little bit further on this, what this would mean, the individual worker's circumstance? Um, typically, what people look at is how much control a worker has over their job. And by control, I mean how much decision-making autonomy do they have? How much um, leeway do they have in applying a variety of skills that they may possess to their job? Those are some sort of individual level factors. More organizational level factors um, are policies and procedures that the organization may have adopted. How, how the jobs in general are designed. 
Well, thank you for giving us a little bit more detail on this. Now, I'm particularly intrigued by the issue of um, prevention as well, but also in terms of stigmatization or the taboo of stress or, or overwork workload. Because if you want to seem like a motivated employee, um, you don't want to be demoted, you, you try your best. And I wonder whether employees are mostly hiding if um, there are issues with how they can manage their workload. So what are some of these um, preventative aspects that employers need to pay particular attention to in terms of um, acknowledging the first signs of stress or or if an employee is already struggling with, with what they're having to do and, and not being able to? There, I mean, there, there are um, a couple of things that, that managers can do um, to sort of address this issue that you're bringing up, which is more about being preventative as opposed to reactive. Uh, and uh, one of the things is employee participation having employees participate in decision-making processes, um, having spaces for employees um, to voice their concerns, um, having spaces for employees to collaborate together, to work together. Um, another big factor is supervisor behavior. There is a growing literature that is leaking how supervisors interact with their workers has a powerful impact on worker well-being. And so the more supportive supervisors are, um, the higher quality feedback that supervisors provide to their workers with respect to their getting their jobs done. Um, these are all things that help mitigate the negative effects of stressors on employee well-being. One of the things that gets overlooked um, when talking about uh, stress in people's work environment is the fact that organizations are goal-oriented um, places. People work to achieve certain organizational goals. And when we achieve those goals, we feel good. When we don't achieve those work goals, we feel bad. I mean, this is very clear in, in sort of the, the literature looking at people's overall lives. It's very intuitive to people. When I achieve something important in my personal life, I feel good. When I don't achieve something, that's important in my personal life, I feel bad. And so one of the things is making workers aware of the successes that the organization is having, making workers aware of the positive things that they are doing. Um, it sounds very simple, but it is a very powerful and simple tool that does reduce worker stress because they see that they're achieving goals that are important to them. You know, on the Work Life podcast, we speak quite regularly about leadership skills and actually the leadership skills gap and how that links to organizational culture. And what you just explained is, is so vital and so important to keep up the motivation. You know, 
leaders multi leaders who have to motivate the employees to reach, as you said, the ultimate goals. But then also they need to keep up the motivation, they need to keep up the energy, so to speak, not just on the short term, but also mid and long term um, to accomplish these organizational goals. Right, right. You you need those those intermediate goals are the fuel for your long-term goals. Uh, it's very hard to achieve long-term goals if you're not making progress and feeling good about your um, intermediate goals. And just a very simple example is going to school and not receiving any grades on your assignment or not receiving um, your grades at the end of the quarter or semester, but you have this long-term goal of graduating. If, if you didn't get those intermediate goals fulfilled, um, it would be very difficult for people to maintain their commitment and motivation for that long-term distal goal of graduating from high school or college. I'm sure all of the listeners who are listening to you right now are kind of thinking back in their heads as to wherever they were, what was the behavior of their boss or their line manager, and also whether they had the skills to actually lay down these intermediary milestones um, or you know to engage in any other kind of motivational uh, work. Because from my experience um, in organizations, you may have a fantastic salesperson um, who, through seniority and through just being around, sticking around with the company, after a while for compensation, for development, is then becomes, for example, the head of sales. And they may have been an excellent salesperson, but now they're heads of, head of sales, so they're the line manager of other salespeople. But they may not necessarily have had that training that is necessary to provide this management. Well, you, again, you bring up another excellent point is that, yes, um, there seems to be this underlying assumption in organizations that if you are an excellent worker, you will be an excellent supervisor or manager. And those are, those are some of the skills overlap, but a lot of the skills are, are very different. And so the first, <clears throat> the first thing is not to make the assumption that an excellent worker will become an excellent supervisor or excellent manager. The second thing is that there you really need to be formally trained in effective supervision, formally trained in effective management. Um, there is a body of knowledge, there's a science to being an effective supervisor, there's a body of knowledge, there's a science to being an in, in, uh, effective manager. The other sort of key thing is um, there's a confusion about management and leadership that that um, is out there in the public domain, and the the dominant narrative is that leaders are better than managers, and I I would challenge that, and I would and I would challenge that by saying leadership <coughs> is a necessary but insufficient component of effective management. So leadership is a necessary 
but insufficient component of effective management. And I can sort of expand on that if you want. Yes, please. Managers, supervisors don't actually do the work of an organization. They ensure that the um, frontline staff are the ones who do the work. So their primary focus is on employee performance. Okay? Performance is a function of motivation times ability times situational factors. If I want to kick a, a, uh, a soccer ball into a goal, I need to be motivated to do it. If I want to kick a soccer ball into a goal, I need to have the ability to do it. I need two legs. If I want to kick a soccer ball into a goal, I need to have a ball and I need to have a goal. Leadership focuses primarily on motivation. How do I get you to go above and beyond? Leadership doesn't really focus on my need to train you or my need to deal with the situational factors that are preventing you from doing your job. So leadership is necessary, but it's insufficient to effective management because it doesn't deal with the training issues. It doesn't deal with the fact that the workers don't have the resources that they need or that the organization is having a problem with another organization and supervisors and managers need to address that conflict between the two organizations so that I can perform my job. Well, I would like to just thank you for sharing this excellent point with us because, again, what you just said in the media and, and in, in popular management um, platforms, now the real focus is always seems to be on leadership, how to become an excellent leader and what are the characteristics of leadership and great leaders. And I think that what you just said really, really makes sense that it complements a management that is more than just motivation. So, so the key for organizations is then how can they make sure that the persons they hire or the persons they promote are not only excellent leaders or have those desired leadership qualities, but also are going to become great managers. Well, you, I mean, it goes back to training. The, the, you should be promoting people who are trained to do this type of work. Um, or you should be providing the training to your frontline staff, identifying people who you see as potentially um, wanting to move into supervision or management uh, and providing that in training or encourage them, encouraging them to get the formal training um, so that they can be successful in these organizations, uh, in these new positions. The next thing that sort of needs to happen is you have to support these individuals. What typically happens is workers are not supported by supervisors because supervisors are not supported by managers and managers are not supported by um, executives. And so you get this sort of chain reaction of lack of support. Yes, and this is kind of the worst case scenario where um, there is, let's say, um, all these external stressors and managers who are not going to be able to deal with it because they lack the skills and they don't get their support either. 
which leads to stress and over the long run burnout if it's not if it's not dealt with effectively so coming to this perhaps next section of uh, of our conversation may i ask you just to explain to listeners what exactly is burnout sure so burnout um, burnout can can be seen as the long term effects of the stress process. Uh, and burnout has three components. Um, the first component is emotional exhaustion. So over time, if we are in the stress process and it's not, uh, stress is not alleviated, you're going to get one of these strain outcomes is it will be emotionally so you'll be emotionally exhausted um, over time if you're not dealing with your stress the second factor is depersonalization so if people are emotionally exhausted they don't have the emotional resources to give to the people that they're serving so they become depersonalized. They sort of dehumanize people um, as a way, right? Detached, detached from their coworkers, detached from the people they're supposed to be serving, detached from the customers. Um, but that's that is sort of a protective mechanism because you're emotionally exhausted. So how would that typically manifest itself? Um, what would a manager be able to detect or how could they identify that their workers are experiencing this? Well, well you, would, you, you, would, you would identify that people aren't being engaged in their work and people aren't positively engaging their co-workers or positively engaging their clients or customers. The other, the third part of um, burnout is this lack of personal accomplishment. And so you can almost see it as, uh, as some people say, it's almost this process where you become emotionally exhausted. You then start to become detached or disengaged um, and depersonalized people at work and people you're supposed to be working for. And as a result of that, you become ineffective in your job which then again adds to the emotional exhaustion, which sort of adds to the depersonalization. And so those are sort of the basic three components of burnout, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and lack of um, feeling like you're accomplishing your goals at work. I just also would like to apologize to the listeners because uh, I guess Mark is experiencing some kind of um, construction noise behind him and I'm very sorry about that and hope uh, this is not going to be interfering on your listening pleasure. Now coming back to our discussion Mark, um, so not only do managers, supervisors need to be skilled in um, in, in management, in, in providing this all-round management of which leadership is just a part that you explain, but they also need to be um, able to recognize what are the stressors that are impacting on the co-workers and what are the first symptoms of burnout so they can really 
acknowledge and and recognize that this is this is going on well it's it's think it think of it as a continuum burnout burnout is the extreme outcome of long-term stress so if you're under stress for an extremely long period of time and that stress isn't mitigated in some way, shape, or form, um, you're going to eventually get to burnout. People can be stressed, but then they have a respite from that stress um, and they're able to re-energize their personal resources. They're able to take a break, a vacation to recover. Um, and so they won't get to that state of burnout um, or they're feeling like their goals are being met. So all these things that re-energize people, getting rest, taking a vacation, feeling like you're doing well in your work, you're achieving your goals, feeling like you're being supported by your coworkers, your supervisor, the organization, all these things re-energize people. I'm really, um, I'm really happy that you mentioned not all stress is bad because I think in the common language or common media, we're really used to um, stress being the mother of all evil at the workplace. Yet, it is not only unavoidable, but it is also necessary to keep up the energies. Yeah, yeah, that that's again, that's an excellent, excellent point. And stress is not necessarily negative. Um, People need sort of stress to become sort of somewhat engaged and to focus on, on the work. Um, the issue is if that stress is continual and long-term and there's no chance for you to re-energize yourself. So athletes, athletes need that sort of level of stress to perform well. Entertainers need that sort of level of stress to perform well. So stress has a very adaptive function when it comes to our performance. It becomes maladaptive when it starts to drain our, our resources, our internal resources. We don't have a chance to recover. Well, thank you very much. I mean, this is so interesting and and I think that a lot of uh, our listeners are going to be able to take away some very important points. But time is unfortunately running. So before we come to our last question, may I just ask you where our listeners could reach you or get in touch with you? Okay, um, I'm at Columbia University School of Social Work in New York City. My email address is MP, my initials, Mark Preston, MP. 2557 at columbia.edu mp2557 at columbia.edu well thank you very much for this and we will also put this into the show notes of this podcast now coming to our last question which is always the same on the work life podcast if i could ask you mark to give one advice or a first advice to the ceo to prevent burnout, to be attentive to stressors at the workplace, what would your first advice be? Um, my first advice would be to 
adopt the attitude that there's no such thing as a bad worker, only bad managers. Thank you very much for this very pragmatic and and compact advice. Um, thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to uh, being with us today on this podcast episode to discuss what stress is and what uh, burnout. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'd like to thank the listeners for tuning in. And if you like this episode, or if this was the first episode that you listened to, um, why not go on our website, www.worklifehub.com, where you can find all the other podcast episodes that we've been recording since summer of 2014 that deal with all sorts of issues around leadership, organizational development, culture, and work-life balance. And we also have a blog, and we invite you to get in touch with us if you have any questions or suggestions, or would like to propose perhaps uh, another guest for the podcast.